Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Joining us is the founder of Word on Fire, Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to be here with you. Brandon, always a joy to be with you. We talked at the end of the last episode about the new Word on Fire journal, and I wanted to mention it one more time. Excuse me, the Word on Fire Institute journal. I want to be very clear about that. You can find it at wordonfireshow.com slash journal. You can see samples of it and find out how you can subscribe to it. It's a journal on evangelization and culture that we've created for our Word on Fire Institute members. So there's high-level philosophy, interviews with filmmakers, poetry, uh, artwork, all, all sorts of things in this realm of evangelization and culture. Bishop, I, I know seeing the first issue must have made you very happy. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I've just been delighted. Every time I look at it, just the cover, I think, is uh, so splendid. But uh, I remember just leafing through it when I first got it and finding, uh, again, what I said about Chesterton last time, you know, like opening a bottle of champagne. Uh, that's what I thought when I first read it. So we're releasing it four times a year. It's a quarterly journal. Everyone who joins the Word on Fire Institute gets it for free. It's included mm -hmm. in the membership. So go to wordonfireshow.com slash journal. Okay, today we're going to be doing one of our favorite types of episodes. It's a Q&A episode with Bishop Barron, but with questions only from children. We got children all over the world who have called in, <laughs> recorded questions. They're almost unbearably cute. Uh, so let, let's just, let's dive right in, Bishop. Here's the first one. It's from John Paul. He's a seven-year-old from Oregon. Here's his question. My name is John Paul. I'm from <laughs> Oregon and I'm seven years old. My question is on the new heaven and the new earth. What if someone sins again, like Adam and Eve? Wow. What a cool question. That, that's, a really, that's a really deep question. And John Paul, you're living up to your name of, of St. Pope John Paul II. You know, here, here's the way, John Paul, I'd answer that. Um, can God sin? And obviously, no, God, God can't sin. I mean, God is, is so perfect, right? Well, in the new heavens and new earth, we'll be so in the presence of God. We'll be so close to God. That we we never fall away. See, one reason we sin is that whatever we have, it's not enough, and we say, "Oh, maybe it's this, or maybe it's that, and I'll try this or try that, or I'm not really happy." But see, in the new heavens and new earth, we'll be so completely happy, we'll be so completely in God's presence that we won't we won't want to fall away from that. Uh, so I, I wouldn't worry about it. It won't be like Adam and Eve, where someone might sin. You know, and then the whole thing has to happen all over again. In the new heavens and new earth, we're so caught up in, in God's love that we're not going to sin. All right, let's go a little north to Toronto, where we're going to hear from six-year-old Nathaniel, who has a question about Judas and Jesus. Here's oh, Nathaniel's okay. question. Hi, I am Nathaniel from Toronto, Canada, <laughs> and I'm six years old. And I have a question for Father Baron. Why did you? Why did um Jesus pick Judas to be one of the disciples when Jesus knew that Judas was gonna betray him? Oh wow! <laughs> you guys have been reading theology books. I think these are these are complicated questions. You know, and really, Nathaniel, I mean this. Some of the the smartest people in the history of the church have wondered about these things. They, they are kind of deep, difficult questions. What would I say now? Why did he pick Judas? 
here, here's, here's one way to do it. Can God bring good things even out of bad things? And the answer is yes. So we look at bad things that happen in the world and we just say, how awful. Why did that happen? But God is able to bring good things even out of bad things. Think of somebody, I don't know, Nathaniel, if you know anybody in your family who's ever had to go to the hospital, you know, for surgery, where they have to be in the hospital for a long time and the doctor has to do something like they like cut them open or take something, take a, something out. And it's terrible in itself. It's like it means a lot of pain and suffering. But from that comes something good that they're, they're able to live and, and they get healthy again, right? Or maybe something really bad happens to you, but then you say, you know, like a year later, I kind of see how a lot of good things happen because of that. And what looks so bad actually turned out to be something good. So Judas, who betrays the Lord, that's true. It's something bad. Yeah. But can God bring something good even out of that? And the answer is, is yes, because out of that came the cross and therefore our redemption and therefore our salvation. And so even from the bad act of Judas, God is able to bring something good. And, you know, Jesus loved Judas. He never stopped loving him. Judas turned away from the Lord, and that caused him great suffering. So think about that. It's not like God stops loving people. He doesn't. He, he loves them in a way even more when, they, when they've walked away. But yet he gives us freedom. You know, we, we can say yes or we can say no. But even when we say no, God can bring something good out of that. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. It's really a good question. All right, we're going to swing all the way to the other side of the world to hear from Caleb. Caleb is Filipino, but he's living in Qatar. Nice. He's eight years oh, old. Oh, wow. Okay. Here's, here's Caleb's question. Hi, Bishop Baron. I'm Caleb, a Filipino in Qatar. I am eight years old, and I want to ask you a question. Does heaven have nighttime? Thank you, and God bless. That's a cool question. Well, and, and what an opportunity, Kayla, while well, you're Filipino and then you're living in Qatar. And so well, you're getting exposed to so many different cultures and languages. And that's beautiful. And the Filipinos, I know so many Filipinos. Uh, they remind me in some ways of like my own people, the Irish. You know, this little country, Ireland, but was so Catholic that it sent people all over the world as priests and nuns and missionaries. And the Philippines is sort of like that today. This is an intensely Catholic country. And it sends great, you know, seeds of the faith all over the world. So that's beautiful. Does heaven have nighttime? Well, you know, what's heaven like? Eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, it's so, it's so wonderful that we can't even imagine what it's like. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It means that it's so great that anything we, we say about it won't be enough. So, you know, we can imagine heaven different ways. When I was a little kid, you know, when the, um, when the sun shines through clouds and those kind of rays of light come down, my, my parents said, oh, that's, heaven's like that, you know. And I still, I still, when I see that, I think, oh, it's heaven. Or the Bible even says it's this great city with streets made out of gold and the gates are made out of pearl. It, I mean, beautiful is wonderful. What's it really like? I don't know. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, but it, it's so wonderful that I can't even imagine it. Is it like 
all the beautiful things in this world. Yeah, I would say it, it's like them in some way. It includes them in some way. Whatever is, is wonderful and rich and beautiful in this life. And so nighttime, I, I've always loved nighttime. Maybe when I was a really little guy, I would get scared sometimes at night. But but I, I've always since then loved the nighttime. Um, looking up in the night sky, you know, at the, the moon and the stars and the planets. Just the, just the beauty of even walking outside at night, you know. Is there something like that in heaven? Yeah, I think so. If it's beautiful and it's and it's lovely and it, it appeals to our hearts, I think there's something like it in heaven. Uh, is heaven like daytime? Yeah, yeah. Light and color, you know, and all the fun things I can do in the daytime. You know, when I was when I was a little kid, you're how old now, Clay? You're eight. When I was eight, I loved baseball. I played started playing baseball when I was like seven. And so daytime meant time for baseball. You know, I can get outside and I can run around. And I can play and hit the ball and, and catch and all that. Is there something like that in heaven? Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's both daytime and nighttime and everything else and things that we can't even imagine how wonderful they are. Um, that's probably the best we can do, Caleb. But I think it's whatever you find beautiful in nighttime uh, will be in heaven. You know, thinking about this question about what heaven is like, Bishop, every time we do these kids Q&A videos, you and I remark how such a high proportion of the questions have to do with heaven, hell, purgatory, the last things, yeah. death. Kids have this innate fascination yeah. with those topics. Yeah, absolutely. They And they just, they're, they're natural theologians. Um, we, we knock it out of them, sadly. <laughs> or we'll mock a question or say, oh, that come on, they're just being silly. No, the, these are, these are. believe me, the, you won't find any questions more penetrating in Thomas Aquinas than the questions we've been looking at right now. Um, and kids naturally have them. Uh, good, good. Encourage them. Don't, don't um, uh, discourage the questions, but uh, answer them. And then keep giving better and better answers as the kids get older. So they can, they can move more deeply into it. All right. Let's go back to Canada. Now we're going to hear nice. from a young girl named Kirsten. She's got a question about St. Michael. Here's the question. Oh. Hello, Bishop Barron. My name is Kirsten McLean from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan in Canada. I'm wondering how St. Michael is an angel when he's a saint. Oh. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I, I love how beautifully you said Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, by the way. That's not easy <laughs> to say. Twister. Yeah, and that's a very alliterative. You'll learn what that means later. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Um, that's a cool question. Um, who's a saint? A saint is a friend of God. It would be one way to characterize it. Someone who uh, loves the Lord and is counted as God's friend. And so in that way, all of the good angels are, are also saints, right? They're also friends of God. Um, and so Michael's not unusual that way. All, all, the, all the good angels would be God's friends. What I find lovely about someone like Michael is God sends some of these friends of his to help other friends of his, <laughs> namely us, right? The angels, some of them, we say, spend all their time in, in the praise of God, the ones who are closest to him. 
But then other angels have kind of a missionary uh, spirit. And they're sent like apostles. They're sent out to help us. So Michael uh, fights for us against the dark powers. Uh, other angels are, are sent as guardians to us. Here's something that's really cool. Um, Thomas Aquinas was asked, what happens to your guardian angel after you die and you go to heaven? And his answer was, he then becomes your friend. That beautiful. Yeah. So in the course of this life, this friend of God, a guardian angel, is sent as your protector and guardian. But then when you make it to heaven, and the guardian angel is so happy about that because it means his work is done, he now becomes your friend. Um, and not so much like your protector, he's now your companion, your friend. So in a way, all the, all the good angels are friends of God, and they're our friends too. All right. Next, we hear from Luke. He's a five-year-old boy in Belgium, and he's asking another question about heaven, but this one in regards okay. to Jesus. Here's Luke. Okay. Hello, Bishop Barron. My name is Luke, and I'm five years old, and I am in Belgium. Why is Jesus not not in Belgium? And why is Jesus why is Jesus um, in heaven and not in Belgium? And so I can see him. <laughs> So, Luke, I, I imagine that tu parles français, because I love the, your pronunciation de Luc. It was uh, <laughs> la manière française. Well, listen, I love your question. Why is Jesus in heaven, not in Belgium? Well, Jesus is in heaven. That's true. But he's also in Belgium. Why do I say that? Well, Luke, if you go into any Catholic church in Belgium, you're going to find somewhere in that church a little box called the tabernacle. And by that tabernacle, there'll be a little red light burning all the time. And that little light says something. It says that in the tabernacle is the Eucharist. And Jesus is really and truly present under the form of, of bread in the tabernacle. And so he's in heaven, that's true, <laughs> but... He's also, thanks be to God, in Belgium. And he's in France, and he's in India, and he's in Brazil, and he's in Australia, and he's in Portugal. Wherever the Blessed Sacrament is, Jesus is. And you can visit him, and you can see him, and you can spend time with him. And I, I would urge you, you're five years old, Luca. Huh? Um, you can start. Brandon, your kids, huh? some of the real little ones. Do um, Eucharistic adoration, right? How mm -hmm. how young can uh, they kind of handle it? Down to one, as long as they can be quiet, <laughs> they're welcome there. Yeah, I mean, so I think Luke, go into any Catholic church in Belgium and um, find the tabernacle, and you can spend time with Jesus in Belgium. <laughs> All right. Next up, we have another question about the last things, continuing the, the heaven and purgatory questions. This one's about purgatory. It's from Lydia. She's a young girl in Pensacola, Florida, my home state. Here it is. Hmm. Hi, this is Lydia from Pensacola, Florida. And, is and I want to ask you, is purgatory a real place? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, what's purgatory? Purgatory is that place where we are purged. And purged is kind of a fancy way of saying kind of cleansed, right? We're kind of cleansed 
of all the effects of sin that still cling to us. You know what I mean when I say that, um, Lydia, is when you sin, it, it does something to somebody else, like you've harmed someone else, but it's also kind of harmed you too. It's made you kind of a, a, a less than perfect person. It it leaves like a like a residue behind. And even, you know, we go to confession and, and we're forgiven for our sin, but still a life of sin can affect us in this kind of negative way. We use the, it's an image, don't don't take it too literally, but uh, the image of, of dirt, they get dirt on us, you know? Think of someone like in a, if you're wearing a beautiful, uh, you know, white dress, you go out playing in the mud, right? And the, the dress now is, is full of mud. Well, let's say, You've been out playing, you got your dresses all dirty, and you've just heard that your your grandmother has come. Your grandmother's come to the house and she wants to see you. Well, your mother would probably say, Listen, Lydia, before you see your grandmother, go up there and change your clothes and you, you look dirty and and get yourself looking, you know, better. And then you'll come down and greet your grandmother, right? So think of purgatory that way, maybe it's a lot of us, you know, we're gonna leave this life and even as we're friends of God, but yet we're still affected by sin it's like we have a dirty clothes on and so the lord says okay we need to do a little work to get you ready to to live the life of heaven and so that's what purgatory is now what's it like exactly i i, I don't know people have imagined it in different ways someday when you're older you'll read uh, this great poet dante who imagines purgatory as a mountain that we have to climb um People have used the image of, of fire, but see fire there that cleanses, that purifies, right? So what's it like? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But I, I know what happens there is a cleansing and purifying to make you ready for heaven, if that makes sense. All right. Next up, <clears throat> excuse me. Next up, we have a question from Gianna. She's a five-year-old in Indiana. She's got a, hmm. a two-parter for you here, Bishop. Here's her questions. Okay. Hello, my name is Gianna, and I'm five years old. I live in Indiana, Sunman. My, I have two questions. My question is, my first question is, did Saint Joseph ever sin? Or and my next question is, did, uh, where are the? Do you know where the uh, stone tablets are or the Ten Commandments? <laughs> So I think wow. just, just to recap, yeah. I think she said, did St. Joseph ever sin? And yeah. where are the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, no, I think that's good. They're both good questions. Uh, St. Joseph is one of the great saints in the whole church. In fact, we call him the patron of the universal church. That means like of all the saints, you know, I mean, he's the go-to guy. He's a very powerful saint. One of the greatest people that ever lived. But the church says that only, you know, two people, people are completely sinless and that's jesus and the blessed mother and so could saint joseph have sinned the answer is, is yes we don't say that he's he's sinless but joseph remains um gianna a great person and a great saint and you should be a, a friend of his it was it was several years ago through a student of mine who had a great devotion to St. Joseph that I developed more of a devotion to St. Joseph. Uh, growing up, I, I wouldn't have had it that strongly. But in recent years, I, I have. In fact, in my chapel in my house, which is downstairs, um, 
I've got that little statue that Pope Francis loves, which is St. Joseph sleeping, and he's, he's on his side, and he's got like a little pillow in his hands like this, and it's Joseph asleep because he was a dreamer. Remember the Bible says he has dreams, and the Lord spoke to him. And so the idea is you place your petition, what you, you're seeking from the Lord, under his pillow. So as he sleeps, he kind of dreams of what you're asking for. So I've got him in my chapel, and I every morning when I do my holy hour, I'm always very aware of of St. Joseph. And I tend to give him really hard things. You know what I'm saying? Things that I, I really want or I'm really worried about or I think are, boy, that's that's a tough one. I'll give that to Joseph because he's the patron of the whole church. And he's like a father. He was foster father of Jesus. And so he's kind of a father figure for the whole church. So, I, I mean, we don't say he's sinless, but I think he's a great, great saint that we should turn to. Um, I love your second question, too. Uh, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. We hear about them in the book of Exodus. Moses, remember, he breaks them against the Mount Sinai when he sees the people worshiping the golden calf. Well, those tablets we hear in the book of Exodus were put inside of the Ark of the Covenant, right? That, that ceremonial box the Israelites carried around, plated in gold. It's described. You can go in the Bible and see how it's described. But they put the Ten Commandments, the tablets, in that great box. And for centuries, they kept it, carrying it around with them. For a while, it was in a tent. In the time of David, they begin thinking about, um, let's build a more appropriate setting. And so it's David's son, Solomon, builds the great temple. And they put the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple. And that lasted a long time. It lasted about 500 years until this, uh, you'll read about it in the Bible someday, the Babylonians came, enemies of the Israelites, and they conquered Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. Now, either they carried the Ark of the Covenant uh, away and did something to it, or before they came into Jerusalem, it might have been taken away. Some think the prophet Jeremiah took it away and hid it. Some say he brought it to Egypt. We don't know. We don't know what happened. That's why you hear about the lost ark. Someday maybe you'll watch Indiana Jones, but that's what that's based on, the idea that we lost the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know where it is. So that's the answer. When they rebuilt the temple, uh, they rebuilt this holy place, but it was missing what was supposed to be there, which is the ark. Um, so they, that's the answer is we don't really know where they are. I know, Bishop, in Brant Petrie's new book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, he has a whole section on Mary as the new ark. Yeah. And he says, yeah. you know, we ask all these questions about where's the ark? Where did it go? Where did it end up? Uh, but he says, we have a pretty clear answer in the Bible itself, because in yeah. the book of Revelation, it says that the ark appears in heaven at the end of time. And yeah. that passage is directly adjacent to the description of Mary being crowned queen of of heaven and so he makes the case that mary is yeah. the new ark the old one fades away the, st the stone tablets of the old law become the new law in jesus and all those right. connections and because she bears the word of god as the old ark bore the the torah the, the commandments uh mary bears the author of the commandments um and also you know my last answer about the tabernacle in any catholic church the tabernacle in a way, it's it's a super Ark of the Covenant. It's it's playing the role of the Ark of the Covenant, but but way beyond just having some stone tablets. It has the 
the body, blood, soul, divinity of the Lord Jesus. So, so we do, right, in Mary, who's the Ark, and in the tabernacle, this is the Ark of the Covenant. All right, we have one more question left. Now, this one is not from a child. It's from a parent, but she's asking okay. about how to help children to perform the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. So I wanted to get your take on that. Here's the question. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Hannah from Noblesville. My question is, to what extent does the duties of a parent fulfill the gospel's call to the corporal works of mercy? My husband and I are young parents with small babies, and this Lent, we really want to practice almsgiving as the gospel tells us to, um, but it's hard with little kids. So how do we do this without neglecting our children or putting strain on our family, but also without becoming selfish as a family and turning inwards? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. You know what I would do, uh, Hannah, is, is just think of your life as parents as very much involved with the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Feeding the hungry. I, I don't know anyone does that more than parents do, right? Every single day, you're, you're giving food to kids that would starve otherwise. Give drink to the thirsty. Every time you, you put a, a glass of water or a glass of milk or something on the table, you're, you're giving drink to the thirsty. Clothing the naked. Do anyone do that better than parents? They're, they buy literally buy clothes all the time uh, for their kids. Think of some of the um, spiritual works of mercy, right? Pray for the living and the dead. Well, you and your kids can do that together. Uh, one of the most vivid memories of my childhood is still my mother coming in at the end of the day, and she would pray with my brother and me. And um, my aunt, my, my father's sister, my, I, she was my godmother, but I, I never knew her. She died, I think, when I was less than a year old. But we always prayed for her. And he, she would remember this, this, and it was just a name, you know, but we always prayed for her. So pray for the living and the dead. Do that with your kids every night. Uh, bless them before they go to bed. I think it's a lovely family ritual. It's a way of, um, of praying. Counsel the doubtful. You know, that's a, um, a spiritual work of mercy. Parents do it all the time with their kids, right? Who have concerns, questions, anxieties, and you uh, calm those. How about bear patiently the troublesome? <laughs> I mean, Never do that. Never yeah, have any opportunities for that. I imagine Brandon's got a few stories about bearing patiently the troublesome. So, I mean, I think you and your husband, certainly, your whole life as parents, just think of it in terms of the corporal and spiritual works. But, you know, you mentioned almsgiving. And I think that's a very cool way to get the whole family involved. Um, how about during Lent, you have a, a poor box and you put it by the door of your house, maybe. And you just say every single time you leave the house or the apartment or whatever during Lent, put something in it. And now you tell your kids, it could be a nickel. I don't care, a dime, you know. But every time you go out of this house, you're thinking about the poor. Uh Okay, your kids have an allowance. Maybe some of them do. I don't know. But uh, encourage them. Put a nickel in every single time. It's, it's more to signal it in their mind. Or put it by your the dinner table. So every time you sit down to eat, say, you know, there are people right now, your age, around the world that have no food. Could we maybe make a little offering um, to them? So you and your husband can do it and have the kids throw in a nickel or a dime or whatever they have. So I think in all those ways, you can be very much involved in a spirituality of, of the corporal and spiritual works. 
What do you think, Brandon? I mean, you, you're living this all the time. Oh, I, I affirm everything you just said. Yeah, that's a lot of things we try to do in our family. Also, maybe to add to it, I'd say whenever we do corporal works for mercy outside the family, we always try to make it a family thing. So it's not yeah, me good. just going to the soup right. kitchen by myself. I bring the kids or we pass out sandwiches at a park or things like that. So make it a family event. Okay, good. that's well, really good. As we wrap up here, I feel like, Bishop, every time we do one of these shows, I'm announcing a new resource that we've put out, <laughs> a new film, a new journal, a new book. We, we're just coming up with so much stuff. And today, the the newest resource from Bishop Barron and Word on Fire are two new books in our Word on Fire Classics line of books. Um, one of them is The Life of Christ by Fulton Sheen. The other one is a Flannery O'Connor collection, which pulls together some of her short stories, lots of her essays and journal entries, and one of her full-length novels. Um, there's not really anything that exists like this in the Flannery O'Connor world. And what I especially like is the way we've arranged it. Uh, you can read the short story, and then right after that, read Flannery's own commentary nice, on that short yeah. story, and then letters she's written to friends about that short story. Um, so get both of these books. Now, to get them, you go to Pivotal players.com and we have a special deal now where you can order the special edition dvd set of the flannery o'connor and fulton sheen episodes of the full of the uh, pivotal players film series lots of bonuses that you get included but especially these two books we're throwing the two new books into this special deal so just go to pivotalplayers.com and find out how you can order these two new books by two of the most important pivotal players well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.